inside something like that will tell you something about you. Like, what do you value? What's important to you? What do you want others to know about you? The NBA player LaMarcus Aldridge loves shoes, and it's an extreme love of shoes. When he built his house, he actually misjudged his closet space that he would need, and this is what he told a reporter. I just built a house in Dallas, and I have a pretty massive closet in it. I filled it up with shoes a couple weeks ago of being home. I probably have something like 100 inside and about 50 on top. I'm starting to put them on the floor. I have crazy shoes right now. What I'm doing right now is I'm in the process of building a separate house behind my house just for shoes, like a little showroom. Imagine having an entire house dedicated as a showroom just for your shoes. This man loves shoes. And what goes inside the trophy case shows what's valuable to us. They, they show us what gives us a sense of accomplishment. They show something about who we are. My wife and I, we like to travel when we get a chance. We collect Starbucks mugs, and we are nowhere near the need to build a separate house for our Starbucks mugs, but they are starting to take over some of our kitchen cabinets. And they're a tangible reminder to us of places we've traveled, or actually in many cases, places our friends and family have traveled because we tell them, hey, you're going somewhere cool, can you pick up a Starbucks mug for us? And they give us a sense of accomplishment. These are places that we've been to. Well, God has a trophy case, and it's not made of, it's not filled with shoes or Starbucks mugs, but his trophy case is filled with his children, living trophies of his grace and his good works. So let us, if you have your Bible, let us turn to Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. I'm going to be preaching from verses 7 through 10 so that we can read about, take a look at God's trophy case, who's inside, the workmanship that he has put into it. So we'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. I'll actually be starting from verse 4, just to give us a little bit of context. So Ephesians chapter 2, starting from verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Heavenly Father, Lord, as you speak to your people through your word, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fill us. Lord, give us eyes to see Christ. Lord, give us greater affection for our Savior, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. In his name we pray. Amen. Today, God wants us to see from this passage that when he saves us, we celebrate his grace and then walk in good works. We celebrate his grace and then walk in good works. And so I'll be picking up the second half of Ephesians chapter 2. Tim preached on the first part. And we're going to be talking about 
the goal of our new life in Christ as well as the result. So two, two main points today in my message, the goal of our new life in Christ and the result of this new life. The goal of our new life is that we would showcase, that we would be living trophies, we would demonstrate, show the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness. And before I get too far into that, I want us to take a brief moment to recap some of what Tim talked about last week in Ephesians chapter 2, the first couple of verses, as he talked about the dark backdrop that we were saved out of, our prior condition. Look with me to chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So we were entrapped by the course of this world prior to coming to know Christ. There was once a well-known musician who was at the top of her career, world famous, accomplishing yet another milestone. But what she told people after accomplishing this milestone is that she felt empty and fearful because she was just under the pressure to have to do it all over again. And I've heard salespeople tell me that you're only as good as your last sale. And so what the world says is you're only as good as your last sale, your last performance, your last high, your last relationship, your last fill-in-the-blank. That's the world system that we live in. And that was the system we were trapped in. But not only that, we were enslaved by the devil. And this, the devil attacks us. This comes in the form of direct attacks, indirect attacks, and often not always in the form of temptation. But not only that, were we entrapped, enslaved, but we were ensnared by our flesh. This might be the easiest for us to see, because so often, if we know our own heart, we know the good we want to do, the good we should do, but we just lack the power. We're just captivated by our own lust, our own anger, our own pride, our own greed. They often get the best of us. And so this is the condition we were in, entrapped, enslaved, and ensnared. And so one commentator puts it this way, the source of evil is both internal and external to people, as well as supernatural. One part might play a leading role, but all three need to be considered. So by nature, we are children of wrath, and we find ourselves like the passengers on the Titanic on the maiden voyage in April 1912, on this practically unsinkable ship with 16 watertight compartments. The Titanic would stay afloat if up to four of those watertight compartments were breached. But tragically, when the Titanic hit that iceberg, six of those compartments were breached. So at that point, all hope was lost, and it was only a matter of time before the Titanic, this supposedly unsinkable ship, would sink to the bottom of the ocean. And that's the situation we were in apart from Christ. We were in a state of hopelessness and a state of being lost. And it would only be a matter of time before we would, we would sink to an eternal destiny, to an eternal judgment in hell. But look with me to chapter, four, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, a new condition for those who are in Christ, for those who belong to Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And what Paul is describing here is a supernatural resurrection. So that means those who were once entrapped by the world 
have overcome the world in Christ. To use the language of 1 John, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Those who were once enslaved by the devil now have victory over the devil in Christ. Verse 6 in chapter 2, God has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. So that means as Christ is seated above every spiritual ruler, power, and authority, because we belong to him, we are also seated above every spiritual ruler, power, and authority. And, and those who were once us, us, we were ensnared by our flesh, we have now been raised with Christ. So we were once ensnared by sin and death, we now have new life in Christ. This means that children of wrath are now children of God, and uh, those who are sons of disobedience are now sons of God. And this brings us to that goal of new life. So now we've looked at the backdrop, where we once were, and now let's look at the goal of the new life that we have in Christ, that we might celebrate God's grace, that we might marvel, that we might be in awe of what God has done. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. This is the, the goal of the new life in Christ. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In church, this is grace unlike any grace in human existence. This is kindness unlike any kindness that we have ever known. And this is love unlike any human love we would have ever known or experienced. Because human love is always reactive. It's reactive. You, some of you like vanilla ice cream and not chocolate ice cream. Some of you like jazz music and not classical music. And we like what's beautiful to us and not what's unbeautiful, what's ugly. And human love is always reactive. But God's love is creative. God's love takes what's unlovely, what's not beautiful, and through His love, He makes it lovely and beautiful. So God pours out His grace upon us, makes us lovely and beautiful, not because of us, but in spite of us. So this phrase, immeasurable riches of grace and kindness, that we see in verse 7, point us back to verse 4. So look with me back to verse 4, at the great love with which He loved us. A similar term is used in the Old Testament, this phrase, abounding in steadfast love. And because the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament, we get, even in the Old Testament, little glimpses of this immeasurable riches of grace and kindness, even in the Old Testament. And most of the time that this phrase, abounding in steadfast love, is used in the Old Testament, it's used in a context where God's judgment is expected because of sin. So take Jonah 4, for example. We see the wicked city of Nineveh, in the Assyrian Empire, condemned by God because of its violence and evil. So God has said he is going to wipe out the city of Nineveh. We don't know how. Maybe he was going to rain down fire and sulfur like what he did when he wiped out Sodom and Gomorrah. And in the same way, we were sitting on death row like those Ninevites. We were dead and condemned. Sinners by nature inwardly and by action outwardly earned God's judgment, and the guillotine is about to drop, and you expect it to drop, judgment to come, but then a surprising turn happens. Grace. The execution is halted. Freedom is granted, and instead of destroying the Ninevites, God gives the Ninevites 
faith and repentance and spares them. Let's look at Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. It'll be on the screen. You are a God gracious. You are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Only when we begin to understand God's wrath will we begin to understand God's grace. Only when we begin to understand the disaster that was coming our way will we begin to appreciate that steadfast love that he has shown us in Christ. Friends, we were the Ninevites, sitting on death row, rightly deserving God's wrath. But then, in that surprising twist, surprising turn, grace and love come when they're least expected. But it's not just grace. Paul uses the phrase, immeasurable riches of his grace. So this is above, above and beyond, light years farther than going the extra mile and beyond the best of the best. It is beyond our comprehension. The word infinite means not finite, not measurable. If you ask a physicist or a mathematician today, they'll tell you, at least most of them I'm aware of, they'll tell you that no actual infinity exists. What that means is that in our human experience, in our human understanding, everything has a beginning and everything has an end. We're born, we live, we die. But that's not just true of human beings. It's true of planets and stars and galaxies. There's a beginning and there's an end. But that's not who God is. God has no beginning, has no end. He is not bound by time or space. And so his grace is unlimited. Let's look at this quote from John Murray to help us just get a grasp for this love of God, this grace of God, this unlimited grace of God. The orbit of God's people has two focuses. One, the electing love of God the Father in the councils of eternity. The other, glorification with Christ. The former has no beginning, and the latter has no end. This means that in the coming ages, we will never exhaust the grace of God the love of God. That, that means because there is no beginning or end to God, there is no beginning or end to the grace of God. It's an infinite well, and as you draw deeper and deeper from that well, the deeper the well becomes. So that's why Paul in chapter 3, we'll get to that in a couple weeks, has to pray that the church would have the strength to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That means in eternity we will never grow bored or tired or old of God's love, but God's love, God's grace will be ever more delightful, energizing, and new. F.F. Bruce writes, if raising Christ from death to sit at his own right hand is the supreme demonstration of God's power, then raising us from spiritual death so that we share Christ's place of exaltation is the supreme demonstration of his grace. So if raising Christ is the supreme demonstration of God's power, raising us is the supreme demonstration of God's grace. So Paul continues in verses 8 and 9, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, on this grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith, 
And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Friends, it's so key. It's not of our own doing, not a result of works. And it has to be because of who we are in our own sinful state. We were dead and condemned. Dead people can't do anything. And condemned sinners can only continue to sin and earn even more wrath, even more judgment. So this means that if we try to earn our salvation by doing good works, it's, it's like putting out fire with gasoline. I mean, it looks like water, but it actually does the exact opposite. In the same way, if we try to offer up our sinful works, try to offer up our works so that we can earn our salvation with God, it actually increases God's wrath because all we can offer to God is our sinful works. So that's why it must all be grace. But some of you might be thinking, well, don't we need to contribute something? How about my faith? Don't I need to add my faith into this equation? Well, we need to take a moment to look at the nature of faith. Faith always has an object, even if it's yourself. Self-help gurus will say, believe yourself. Have faith in your own abilities. But faith in the Bible is always outward-looking. It's always focused on God, always about trusting, relying, and casting your very life upon God. Faith, and it's important for me to clarify here that faith in and of itself doesn't save. Christ saves, and He does it through faith. Faith is merely that channel through which God's salvation flows to us. Let me illustrate. Uh, In ancient Rome, the ancient Roman Empire, aqueducts were constructed, these bridges and tunnels. They were built to, to feed water to life-giving, uh, life-giving water to cities that needed it. So water was located in faraway streams and valleys, but they needed to be uh, imported, brought into cities where people lived. And so once these aqueducts were constructed, these tunnels, these bridges, these pathways for waters, you know, gardens could get water, farms, villas, baths, and people could get water. And the aqueducts of Rome actually allowed the city to grow to a population of one million people in ancient times. The aqueducts don't have life in them. They don't give and sustain life. They merely allow that life-giving water to flow to those who need it. And in the same way, God's grace flows through the channels of faith. This quote by Walter Marshall helps us to understand this nature of faith. Faith is the hand that receives Christ and all of his blessings. Faith is is merely the hand that receives Christ and all of his blessings. And that faith starts with opening our hand to receive the forgiveness of sins, but it doesn't end there. See, faith takes us on a lifetime journey where Christ removes more and more of our sin, where we become more and more like God, and it brings us on a journey where we'll be with God forever in heaven. John Calvin has a great quote that helps us to understand what it means to be united to Christ and to have all of His benefits as, as a result. So, we belong to Jesus. Everything that, ha- that Jesus has is ours in some sense. Since Christ has been given, has been so given to you with all His benefits, that all His things are made yours, that you are indeed one with Him, His righteousness overwhelms your sins." His salvation wipes out your condemnation. 
With his worthiness, he intercedes that your unworthiness may not come before God's sight. So it's all grace. It's not our own doing, not of works, but a gift of God so that no one may boast. Because in salvation, God reserves all the glory for himself. He reserves the glory from beginning to end. And it's all a work of grace. And if we try to take a little bit of credit, if we try to throw in a little bit of our works, we'll end up stealing some of God's glory. Let's look at Isaiah 42, 8 here on the screens. This is what God has to say. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. All the glory belongs to God in salvation. At this moment, it would be helpful for me to point out a key difference between what the Bible teaches and what the official doctrine of Roman Catholicism teaches. If you were raised in this area, maybe you were even raised Roman Catholic, and we respect Roman Catholics. There's a lot we share in common, like our views on marriage and our desire to protect life at all stages. But, but Roman Catholics, however, believe that we have to cooperate with God's grace by adding our works. So the official church doctrine, I'm not saying all Catholics believe this, is that uh, you need God's grace, that's necessary, but then you also have to add your work so that the two things add together to give us salvation. And so hundreds of years ago in the Reformation, the church fought for salvation by grace alone through faith alone, which is what the Bible teaches. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of our doing. Not of, not of works, so that no one may boast. And in a crowd this size, there's likely some who have yet to place your full faith and trust in Christ. Maybe you believe that your good deeds will outweigh your bad deeds on the day of judgment. Maybe you think that, you know, Christ is like an optional add-on, like the luxury package you would, you would purchase if you were buying a new car, a nice-to-have. Or maybe you think this is something I could get to later. I want to warn you that there may not be a later. You may very well be in the comforts of the dining room on the Titanic and oblivious to your fate. There's no neutral position we can take with Christ. He is, own, he is our Savior or He is our judge. And there's no greater tragedy, no greater sin than to turn away from Christ as He calls you to come to Him. Let's, let's read this quote from John Murray. The magnitude of the love, grace, and mercy revealed in the gospel, the glory of Christ's person and the perfection of his work, both finished and continued, the sufficiency of Christ for all our needs, and the blessedness that comes from believing, all combine to make rejection an iniquity or sin of incomparable gravity." If you are ignoring Christ, if you are rejecting Christ, you're in danger of com committing a sin, an iniquity of incomparable gravity. So come to Christ. Come to Christ. Even today, He is calling you in His mercy, in His love to come that you might receive forgiveness of sins, to stretch out your hand to receive Him and all of His benefits. He wants to give Himself to you even today, even now. So from beginning to end, salvation shows the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness. 
So how should this affect us? I know that for me, it can be so easy just to walk out those back doors and then forget the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. So church, let's celebrate this grace. Let's remind ourselves of this grace. Let's sing of this grace. When you're in church, when you're with other brothers or sisters, when you're even looking in the mirror in the morning, remind ourselves, celebrate this grace, celebrate the salvation that God has so richly given to us in Jesus Christ. Let's never get old. Let us never take this salvation for granted. So the goal of this new life is that we might be a trophy, we might be a showpiece of God's grace. It's a gift, nothing that we can earn. It all points to God's graciousness in Christ. Some of you, though, might be asking, if it's all grace, why not sin more? Why not sin more so we can experience even more grace? What's to keep someone from abusing God's grace? Well, that's not how God works. When God saves someone out of sin, it's impossible for them to continue in sin. And that brings us to the result of our new life. The result, the consequence of having this new life in Christ is that we would have good works. Look with me to chapter 2, verse 10. For we are His workmanship, His masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So if you are a new creation in Christ, that means the old has gone, the new has come, and it is a complete transformation. A caterpillar looks nothing like a butterfly, even though a butterfly at one point in time started off as this lowly, worm-like caterpillar. It's a process called metamorphosis. And when the caterpillar is ready to undergo this transformation, it turns its body into this sack. It's called a chrysalis. It's like a cocoon. And inside this sack for two weeks, the caterpillar grows wings, antenna, its legs get longer, and it grows compound eyes. And then after those two weeks, it emerges as something completely different and unrecognizable. It started off as a caterpillar, but now it's a butterfly. And friends, that is what happened to us. We started off dead in sins, but now we are alive and raised with Christ. We started off entrapped by this world. Now we are part of a heavenly kingdom. And we once were enslaved by the devil, but now Jesus is Lord. And we were once ensnared and imprisoned by our flesh, but now we are free to walk in good works that Christ has prepared beforehand for us. And friends, this is nothing short of death and resurrection. Lazarus was four days dead in the tomb until Jesus Christ came to the tomb, looked at it, and said, Lazarus, come out. And once the Son of God called him to life, he emerged, bandages and all. And that's what God has done for us in Christ. So we are a new creation, which means we have a new direction in life. And while it's true that good works can't save us, we're saved by grace alone, there is a sense, friends, that good works are required. They show us, they show God, they show others that we have been saved. Good works are the effect of our salvation, not the cause. The result, not the source. The fruit, and not the root. And it's important for me to, at this moment, to warn some of you who might profess or might say that you have a faith in Christ, but 
there, is no, there are no good works. There's no evidence. Again, I want to just repeat, good works don't save us, but they show that we have been saved. In chapter 2 of the book of James, God talks about dead faith. There's this, it's possible to have this intellectual understanding of the facts of the gospel. Yes, Jesus died. He rose. You know, if he died for my sins, he's coming back again. But it doesn't change your life. And so, Jesus himself even warns that on that final day of judgment, that final day, that there will be many who were deceived. Many he will tell, away from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. And again, that's you. Please turn to faith in Christ. He can receive you even now. And if you are in Christ, some of you might be, you might be wondering, well, what exactly are these good works that Paul is talking about? And that includes certainly mercy ministry, like serving the poor, the disadvantaged, the sick. This morning, we had the joy of just hearing from Melanie about Amnion Pregnancy Center, and we have the the privilege of partnering with with this ministry in order to serve families, serve women, serve those in time of great need. These good works include inviting people to church, the work of evangelism that hopefully we'll be doing this Christmas season. But it also goes far beyond that. In fact, Paul will take the final chapters of, uh, final three chapters of Ephesians, chapters four through six, to unpack what these good works look like in our lives and our hearts. And I want to just briefly touch on what it means to have good works in our walk and our talk. So when we're at home, at school, at work, is our life the way we carry ourselves, the way we walk, is that characterized by humility and gentleness and patience? If people asked your family members and the people closest to you, would they say, yeah, that, that characterizes that person? Or would they say it's more filled with pride, harshness, and impatience? Well, church, let us strive by the grace of God to walk in humility. Wives, you joyfully and willingly follow the leadership of your husbands as they seek to honor Christ. And husbands, do you love your wives and lay down your lives for them, lay down your own comforts and convenience for the sake of your family as Christ himself laid down his life for the church? Employee and employers, do we serve with fear and trembling knowing that we are ultimately accountable, not to our boss, but ultimately accountable to God. And I want, to, I want to unpack this just a little bit, because if you're here and not upstairs in children's ministry, God has called you to work in one of three areas, or maybe even a combination of three areas. God's called you to be a, a homemaker, a student, or to be in the marketplace. And this, my friends, is the primary context where God has asked you to walk out your good works, so whether you're a full-time mom or you're a teacher, a doctor, or, or an accountant, God has a divine calling on your life. And that, means, that certainly means being an honest worker and being a good witness for Christ, sharing the gospel, but, but it goes beyond that as well because work itself is from God and it should be offered to God in worship. When we become a Christian, it doesn't change so much what we do but who we do it for. And this revolutionized my thinking. Prior to going to seminary, I worked about 10 years at Intel Corporation doing chip design. And I wrote computer code. I also had to debug that computer code because it was computer code written in a fallen world. 
And, but that's what God had called me to do, to write code and debug code. And being a pastor isn't more important than being an engineer, because we're all called to help fill this world, to cultivate it, to maintain it, to help humanity develop and flourish. And some of you might do that as an engineer. Some of you might do that as a pastor. And I had a, a season in my life where I helped fulfill that as an engineer designing chips. You might do that in the field of medicine, finance, raising children, or even as a pastor. R. Kent Hughes put it, puts it this way, each of us has an eternally designed job description that includes the task, the ability, and the place to serve. And many of us, we can subconsciously feel like, or subconsciously think that the spiritual realm is church. It's Sunday, it's community group, it's bridge. But that's not the way God views it. See, he's given each of us an eternally designed job description, and all things are spiritual because all things belong to God. So again, when we become a Christian, it doesn't so much change what we do, but change who we do it for. So Jesus Christ is our new master. So when you write that code, when you teach that lesson, preach that sermon, file that paperwork, change that diaper, it's all done unto Jesus. So then what about our talk? Is our talk filled with good works also? Do we speak truth in love, build up others? Or is our talk corrupting talk or slanderous talk that attacks others? So stay tuned for future messages where we get to hear from God about what He has to say about what we say. There's some important applications as we begin to wrap things up. Uh, some of us might be tempted to rely on good works. And we, we feel good if we've got those good works, if we're in the groove, or we just feel bad if we, we don't feel like we're doing that many good works. But again, I want to remind you that these good works are prepared beforehand by God. And it's good works themselves are a gift of God's grace so that He gets all the glory, even in those good works. Some of you might be fearful about good works or even feel intimidated. Like, I can't be like that person. Wow, they have those good works. I, can, I can't come anywhere near that. Let's remember that you have what it takes for those good works. You have Christ. And so God has promised that he will make all a gr grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things, you will abound in every good work. And in chapter 6, Paul will describe the armor of God that, he, that we will be able to put on in order to carry out our, our warfare. And finally, some of us might just feel a little bit lazy in good works, but a true understanding of grace and God's glory actually drives us to work harder. This is what happened with Paul as he considered the grace, the grace that saved him from being a persecutor of the church to a proclaimer of the gospel, it drove him to work even harder. Let's look at what he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 9 and 10. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So when God saves us, we celebrate His grace and walk in good works. And there's no 
greater privilege, no higher calling than to be in God's trophy case, to be showpieces of His grace and His good works. So God has this trophy case, living trophies of good grace, of, of grace and good works. At Cambridge a number of years ago, when the Reverend Paul Gibson retired as a principal, a painting was, was done of him. And Gibson paid a well-deserved compliment to the artist. He said, in the future, he believed people looking at the picture would not ask, who is that man? But rather, who painted that portrait? Isn't that so with us? In the coming ages, both now and forevermore, we, are, we will be trophies of God's grace so that people will not be focused on, oh, who are those people, but who is their God? So go, celebrate this grace, remind ourselves of this grace, sing of this grace, and then walk out this good grace in good works. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, God, what an amazing thing that we who were once lost, dead sinners, have been saved, have been given new life. Lord, we can't comprehend that, but help us to celebrate it, help us to rejoice in it, help us to remind ourselves of it even this week, and Lord, help us to live in light of that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to do something in closing. This message is full of application all over the place. What I want to do is just take a moment and pray. And what I want you to do is look at, if you've been taking notes, look over your notes, and, or if you haven't been taking notes, uh, look at the text, and just think of one thing that you feel like the Lord wants you to walk out of here today with. Tennessee here to have so many things that are good in this message and walk out with them all in general ways. But I wanted to just take about 30 seconds or so, look over your notes, find that one thing, and just simply ask quietly for the Lord to press that on your heart this week, that we don't walk out with too much we're trying to do or nothing we're trying to do. God wants us to apply and remember and listen. So, so I'm going to take a couple minutes to pray, and then we're just going to... We're going to just take 30 seconds and pray silently all together, something God put on my heart here as well for myself. So, Lord, direct us, God. Direct us to the application for this week. Lord, you want to use this text, this message to do work of change, that good works would be evident through it. And so we ask you right now by the Spirit to come and apply this and, and bring faith for application over the next few days.